If you say to me, do you want to become more holy? Well, yeah, deep down, I do want to become more holy, but I know that's hard. I know it's going to involve sacrifice. If you ask me, do you want to become more beautiful? You absolutely know that the answer to that is yes. You don't want to become more ugly. You want to become more beautiful. I think there's something deeply attractive about beauty and even using that vocabulary, I think may inspire us in our, in our pathway to becoming more like Christ. Dr. Philip Reichen is the president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. He has a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford University, and he is the author of over 50 books. His latest book is called Beauty is Your Destiny, How the Promise of Splendor Changes Everything. And in this episode, Dr. Reichen and I discuss the role of beauty in theology. Dr. Reichen points out that beauty is not a topic that's often discussed in theological circles, but it should be both as a lens through which we view other theological topics like forgiveness or atonement or justice, or even as an attribute of God and the end result of God's work of redemption in our lives and in the world. I think you'll be encouraged, challenged, and edified by this discussion. Here's the episode. So Dr. Philip Reichen, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Nick. I love what you're doing, Theology for the People. I love that, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to uh, share on the podcast. Awesome. So before we get into talking about your book, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your work at Wheaton College, and and maybe, you know, how does that relate to the origins of this book, how it came about? Yeah, so um, I've served as president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, about 25 miles straight west of Chicago for 14 years now, before that served in pastoral ministry in Philadelphia. And I'm a Wheaton alum as well. So I've got longstanding connections to Wheaton College. And my father taught here for 52 years. So I've got half a century of engagement with Wheaton College and really enjoy to serve as, as president now. And one of my privileges is to speak in chapel. I, I do a fair amount of Bible teaching here, there, and everywhere, but including about once a month, I do a chapel series through the year for our entire student body, and I felt strongly about doing a whole year on beauty. This was coming out of COVID, so this is kind of how the book got started, was just teaching on these themes. A lot of the writing I do just comes out of teaching that I'm doing, teaching from the Bible, but I felt like we were starved for community, but also hungry for beauty coming out of COVID. I think when your spirit has been discouraged and you've been through a time of trial, even more so, there's a desire for God, a desire for his beauty in all of its dimensions, which is what I wanted to explore. But I also found during COVID, I was more alert to certain kinds of beauty. I was looking out at my backyard every day. And in the spring, I was actually seeing how things grow and bloom and just having a much better understanding of that and really enjoying the beauty of it. So that was one sort of beauty awakening that I experienced during COVID. So that, that's really the origins of the book. And I wanted to explore as many dimensions of beauty as I could in one year of chapel. Wow. So how many chapel services are you having? Like, what's the regularity with that? Yeah. So we, we do chapel Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They are 40-minute services. Not too long, but long enough to have some liturgical elements, worship God through singing, have scripture engagement. I usually speak for about 20 minutes. That's hard for me. I would rather have 
longer and use a bigger canvas. So it's a little bit more focused, but that's a good discipline to get right to the heart of what I want to say and have focused communication. We have, we have about 90 chapels a year at Wheaton. So it's 30 weeks of school, 15 and 15 between the two semesters. It's about 90 chapels. So there's a lot of worshiping that goes on, a lot of uh, instruction. It's, it's a great spiritual rhythm for us. I feel like it's a long time between Sundays in the Christian life, and it's good for us to have worship opportunities in community beyond Sunday to Sunday worship. That's part of our the privilege of being part of the Wheaton College community. Yeah, that's excellent. So, you know, as you mentioned, you're having three times a week chapel, preaching for 20 minutes, but the book is not particularly long. I mean, I would say, you know, there weren't 90 chapters to the book. So... What yeah, was I do about 10 chapels a year? I do about 10 of the 90, mm. and then I, I lead worship pretty regularly. So, students hear from me, they hear from me plenty. Any more than that, I think, would be too much. But no, it's not an especially long book. The chapters are too long, and short books are good. We probably need some long books too, yeah. but sometimes it's good to pick up a smaller book and feel like you can make your way through it. Nice. Well, the book is called Beauty is Your Destiny How the Promise of Splendor Changes Everything. I do have a lot of questions about the book. I enjoyed reading it. I read through the whole thing. But I want to ask you real quick. So when you were in Philadelphia, were you at the church which was pastored by Donald Barnhouse? Yes, correct. So I served uh, for 15 years in ministry at the 10th Presbyterian Church, right in the heart of uh, downtown Philadelphia. It's about six blocks from City Hall. And that congregation has had a number of illustrious ministers. Donald Gray Barnhouse was nationally famous. He, he pastored from 1927 to 1960, and he was one of the first voices on the American radio airwaves when the airwaves were opened up to religious broadcasting. That, that happened maybe around 1930, something like that. I, I don't remember the exact year, but very gifted preacher and then more recently, James Montgomery Boyce had a mm -hmm. had an outstanding ministry in, in Philadelphia. I overlapped with him for five years and then served 15 years overall in preaching ministry in downtown Philadelphia. And one of the first books I bought when I was a when I became a pastor, I was in my early twenties and you know, I, I was a missionary, so I was actually back here in the US. And so I was like, I gotta get some books. And so one of the books I found on the shelf of our church's bookstore was Donald Barnhouse's book called Let Me Illustrate. And for years, I would just labor over that book, trying to find an illustration which I could actually use. Of course, I was in an international context, so some of the stuff wasn't even a, a very, you know, relevant to the people I was speaking to. But then, you know, what's funny is that one of the best examples I've used recently actually featured Donald Barnhouse. It's actually a true story from his life, which wasn't from that book. So I have yet to actually use a single illustration from that book, though I've, I've tried for almost 20 years. So there, there are, well, they're good stories. It's edifying reading. And he had a gift for storytelling. I mean, one story I really like from Donald Barnhouse maybe shows the beauty of evangelism. There was a man in his community in, in Center City, Philadelphia, that he had often invited to church, wanted to engage him in spiritual conversation. And man really wanted nothing to do with it. Barnhouse heard he was in the hospital and possibly dying. And so he went to visit him. And he wanted to share the gospel with him. The man didn't really want to engage in spiritual conversation at all. And finally, Barnhouse said, do you mind if I just stay here all night? Could I just pull up my chair and stay by your bedside? And he said, well, I don't know. Why would you want to do that? He said, I've never seen somebody die without Christ before. Oh, man. And at that moment, the man said, maybe I, maybe I would like to talk about spiritual things because that doesn't sound good. 
And and Barnhouse led the man to Christ. He professed faith in Christ in that conversation. But he was a bold evangelist and really somebody who made a big, big impact. Wow. Well, let's get into talking about your book. Um, so in the preface, I, I got a lot out of the preface, actually, as you'll notice. But the preface on page 13 of the preface, you said this, that apparently beauty can be an avenue for worship and a call to faithful Christian discipleship. I'm wondering if you could explain that in a little bit more detail. What do you mean by that? What is the place of beauty in theology? So I think beauty has been a a bit of a neglected topic in Christian theology. It's a huge part of daily life. I think we are all drawn to things that are beautiful, images that are beautiful, experiences of the natural world that are beautiful. We are drawn to the physical beauty of other human beings. So it is a big part of life. But when people are thinking about the attributes of God, Beauty doesn't always make the list. When people are talking about really important things like the forgiveness of sins, like how to pursue just relationships in in human life, or even, even an important topic like sexuality, they aren't always thinking in the category of beauty and what is beautiful and how we're drawn to what is beautiful and how God wants us to experience what is beautiful. I, I want it to be a bigger part of my life experience, and I also want it to, to have the place that it ought to have in our understanding of the scriptures and in our thinking about daily life theologically. Beauty is a very important experience for us, and it's a very important topic for us to be thinking about and, and, and practicing. Doing beautiful things is part of God's calling for us in the world. Mm. Okay, so you, you also say that beauty, focusing on beauty affords us an opportunity to consider a wide range of practical doctrines in fresh perspective. How is that so? Maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, one of the things I try to do in my teaching to our college students is no matter what my theme for the year is or where I am in the scriptures, there are some topics that I'm definitely going to want to touch on at some point during the year. Um, I'm going to want to talk about the joy of eternal life. I'm going to want to talk about the importance of just relationships. I want to talk about sexuality. That's a big part of what young people are wrestling with. I want to talk about race and unity and diversity within the body of Christ and in the world. That's, That's an important topic where we're really challenged as a Christian church. I want to be thinking about God. I want to be thinking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to be teaching on salvation. So there's a sense in which um, whatever theme I have for my chapel talks for the year, it's kind of a lens on many, many other topics. And I think beauty is a wonderful lens because beauty intersects with so many other topics in Christian theology. And I mean, if you, there are a lot of ways to think, for example, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's just start with beauty. How is it beautiful? Why is it beautiful? That gives a fresh way of thinking about who Jesus is. And similarly, thinking about the beauty of his saving work. Um, but there are lots of topics that intersect with beauty. It's, it's one good way of talking about a lot of important things and thinking about those things. So that, that's, that's what I mean um, when I talk about beauty as a way into these other topics. Any thoughts on the idea that beauty is, is in a way subjective? I mean, of course, a famous saying that beauty's in the eye of the beholder. In a way, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about beauty as a as a thing which, which actually does have some objectivity to it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. That's a complicated topic. So beauty is not a simple or easy topic. And philosophers have been wrestling with beauty for at least 2,000 years. 
And, you know, my, my brief thoughts in this short book are definitely not the be all and end all of thinking about beauty. Certainly beauty has a subjective aspect. We all have somewhat different tastes. Cultures differ a bit in their appreciation of beauty. I think one thing that we can experience is a wider appreciation for beauty. If somebody says to us, this is beautiful and I find this to be beautiful, and we don't see it as particularly beautiful, it's easy for us to say, well, I, I don't, that, to me, that's not beautiful. Or we can lean in a little bit more and say, okay, like, tell me more about this. Like, I'm, I don't really know much, that much about visual art, or I don't know that much about flower arranging, or I don't know. Now, I don't understand why you would say that that's beautiful, but you do. So help me see the beauty that you see. So I think beauty can be cultivated even where we don't think that we're experiencing it. But I also know from the scriptures that God is said to be beautiful and that there are aspects of his work that are described in terms of beauty. So beauty is a biblical category that has some objectivity to it. And one way of thinking about it is to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder but to spell the word beholder with a capital B. Mm. So beauty is in the eye of the creator. Beauty is in the eye of the redeemer. He is the ultimate beholder who sees us, sees everything that he has created and everything that he's doing in redemption. And he sees the beauty that is there. He, he in fact, has caused the beauty that is there. And we imperfectly can see the beauty that he sees and participate in the beauty that he has created. And that's true in every area of life. We don't, we don't fully live up to the image of God. Uh, we don't fully live up to the holiness of God. Like there are lots of areas where what God is able to see and create, it's infinitely beyond uh, what we are able to create or participate in. But we can participate in it even with the limitations of our humanness and the limitations of our fallenness. So beauty is like that. And it, it's not surprising that there's a subjective dimension to it. But I don't want to let go of the objectivity of beauty. Beauty, truth, goodness. We can have some disagreements or arguments about those topics, but there's a reality there that God knows to be a reality. And we want to think our way into what God knows to be good, true, and beautiful. Mm. One of the things you also say in the book is that beauty is our birthright and that through Christ, beauty is our destiny. Please explain that. And like, what does it mean that it's our birthright? Yeah. So what I mean by that is that God has put us into the world with our own inherent beauty. There's something beautiful about human beings made in the image of God. A lot of us might think, wish I were a little more beautiful than I am. That can be a struggle for us. But there is an inherent beauty to human beings, a grace, and a, and a capacity for beauty that God has put into us, into all of us. We can perceive beauty, and this is true universally. So that's part and parcel of being a human being. What I mean by birthright, it's we were put into the world, given birth to, so to speak, with this capacity for beauty, which is imperfectly realized in this life. Just think like morally in terms of holiness, we're not as beautiful as we should be, but the Holy Spirit's doing a work of grace in us to make us more beautiful like Jesus is. And ultimately, part of our hope as believers is that God will bring to perfection a beautification work that he has begun in us. So I do think beauty is our birthright. Beauty is our destiny. And I also think 
the kind of the way I subtitled the book, it's a pretty strong claim. And a couple of times I've like seen it on the cover of the book and just like checked to make sure, do I still really believe that? Is that an overstatement? How the promise of splendor changes everything. I think that is true. I think the, the prospect of seeing Jesus in his beauty and entering into and participating in that beauty is our eternal destiny. That, that changes everything about how we, how we look at the world. So it's another way of talking. It's just another way of expressing how important, how important beauty is. Mm. Do you also say that the evangelical community has not always considered beauty a serious topic for theology or an important aspect of the Christian life? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure I know. For some reason, I think beauty just seems like something kind of secondary, kind of a luxury. It was a very important topic for philosophers going back to ancient Greece and Rome. Beauty was one of the main things they wanted to think about and talk about. We've wanted to talk about a lot of other things, you know, having to do with salvation, having to do with truth, having to do with culture. Christians, by and large, have been kind of late to see the importance of the visual arts. We think of arts as kind of a secular arena rather than saying, no, we want to bring all of this under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So I, I don't know all the reasons for it, but somehow it seemed a bit secondary for Christians rather than something that's at the core of who God is and who we are. So I want to elevate the importance of that. And I think, I think many others are doing so as well. I think there's more thinking about beauty, more engagement of Christians in the arts as one place of experiencing beauty. So maybe we're, we're trying to catch up or we're trying to lean into it, but I, I think we have neglected it quite a bit. What do you think are some of the ramifications of neglecting beauty? And I remember in the book, you shared this story about John Muir, and I can't remember the details of it. So if you remember it, that would be, yeah. that'd be great. Well, I, I was just in Muir Woods, named after John Muir out in San Francisco. It's one of our beautiful, pristine redwood forests. John Muir was raised in a devoutly Christian home, Scottish parents. Father may have even been a pastor. I can't remember that detail for sure. John Muir became a famous naturalist and explorer of the American West, wrote, wrote a lot about his experiences. And that, that's, I mean, a lot of his celebration of the natural world contributed to the National Parks Movement in, in the United States. So he's, a, he's an, an important figure in American history for understanding the, the value of our, our natural surroundings. What to me is sad is that rather than embracing his calling as valuable for Christians, um, his parents were like, oh, that's like not important the way saving souls is. Like you should be an evangelist. They were very critical and did not embrace his calling as a naturalist and an explorer. And I just wonder, and part of the result of that is that John Muir became much more secular in his thinking and not explicit about a faith in Jesus Christ. I, don't, I can't comment on the eternal destiny of his soul. But what I can say is that rather than being one of the leading Christian thinkers about how to engage the natural world, John Muir went in a, in a uh, he had a more secular appreciation of the natural world. Interestingly, and this is the anecdote I share in the book, his publisher said, you're describing the natural world. Stop using the word glorious so much. That's a religious, that's a spiritual world word. It doesn't really have a place in this manuscript. And I think that's just a sign. He was caught between two things that were not 
ever meant to be in opposition. They really should have been brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So that's that's a vision there. And there's a long history of really great Christian thinking about the natural world and beautiful passages in in Calvin that encourage us to creation care, the celebration that Jonathan Edwards had in his enjoyment of the natural world. This is something for Christians to celebrate and something we should really be at the forefront of. So, yeah, that's just one example that's a little bit of a cautionary tale and, and reminds us there's a different path that we can follow. You know, I live here in Colorado. I know that you have some connections to the state as well. My office window, actually, where I'm sitting right now, my window looks out on Rocky Mountain National Park. I can see the whole thing from from my, well, I can see the front range part of it from Not my Not the whole window. thing, but yeah. Yeah, I can see the front of it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we often hear in Colorado, yeah, people do, definitely Christians, I think that there's an appreciation for natural beauty as a way of glorifying and praising God. But of course, there's the, those who take it to the extreme, right? To the point where they'll say, my church is... Rocky Mountain National Park. My church is the Indian Peaks. And uh, any thoughts on on that when people go to those kinds of extremes? Yeah. So for starters, it's the good things in life that tempt us to make them ultimate things. So beauty is definitely in that category. Artistic beauty, beauty of the natural world. So that, that's why we need to recognize it as a gift from God that returns to his praise. So putting, putting beauty in its proper, proper cosmic context is very important. Also, there are things that you experience in the local community of the people of God that, that you cannot experience in the natural world. Worship, teaching, fellowship, rebuke, you know, no matter how pristine, no peak is ever going to challenge you in an area of moral compromise where you need to grow. Like there are all kinds of things that, that happen in the life of the local church. Part of the challenge is, People are difficult, and some of the things that are most broken and least beautiful in our world are the broken relationships and the things that people do, and that's part of the heartbreak of living in the church. So we need to take a bigger picture on, on what God is doing in a redemptive way in the life of the church as well. So it's, it's you can understand the temptations to substitute natural beauty in the created world for worship of the Creator. But what we are meant to see is a deep connection there that, that brings wholeness to life in the way that an idolatrous appreciation of beauty never could. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. The gospel is the hope of the world, and the world needs more gospel-centered churches. That's why Cultivate by CGN exists. I'm Clay Worrell, Executive Director of CGN, and I'm here with my friend, Pastor Nick Cady. We want to take a moment to let you know about the Cultivate Church Planter Training Program. Cultivate has created the infrastructure to support the planting of 1,000 new churches in the next decades, starting in 2023. We follow in the footsteps of renowned church planters in the Calvary Chapel movement, embracing and adopting their rich heritage of church planting in order to transmit our values, theology, and philosophy of ministry to this generation and for those to come. You know, as church planters ourselves, we understand that planting a church is not an easy task, but we believe it's an essential one. That's why we've created a range of resources to help you and your team prepare for the journey ahead. Our resources are personal, 
practical and pastoral. Our program is from six to 24 months and is designed to equip you to lead a gospel-centered community wherever God has called you around the world. We also have a global team of mentors and coaches with thousands of hours of experience planting and pastoring churches, and they're ready to support you in the training phase, the launch phase, and in the post-launch phase of planting a church. With our guidance and support, you can feel confident in your ability to engage the world for Christ. Are you ready to answer the call of church planting? Together we can make a difference and bring the hope of the gospel to communities around the world. If you're ready to take the next steps and learn more about our church planting program, we invite you to visit our website at cultivatechurchplanting.com. So you talk about something also called the beatific vision. And so I want to ask you what that is first, but then here's what you say about it. You say that too many Christians are unaware of this thrilling biblical promise and they've neglected its implications for Christian discipleship. So first of all, what is the beatific vision and its promise, and what are the implications of it for Christian discipleship? Yeah, good question. You know, in an earlier era of Christian experience, there was a lot more interest in the life to come. For example, if you look at the music that Christians sing, the lyrics of those hymns, Scripture songs, more contemporary forms of of worship music, I'll just say roughly 100 years ago, I won't have the exact dates, but 100 years ago, it was much more common to hear a lot more singing about the life to come. Some of the most popular hymns were looking forward to the life to come. may have been partly because American life was pretty tough in the Depression and some other seasons, and people were looking for that kind of escape and deliverance and, and freedom. So it's just a reminder that sometimes we pay more or less attention to important things in theology. And that's one of the reasons to read about the history of the church, because you say, wow, this was important in an earlier era. Earlier era, this idea of the beatific vision, or just call it the beautiful vision. The beautiful vision is seeing the visible face of Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the grave was not temporary. It is eternal. There's a Scottish theologian that had a provocative way of saying it, the dust of earth now sits on the throne of the universe. In his physical resurrection body, the Lord Jesus Christ has a place of eternal reign. We will have a sense of like connection with Jesus because he too has a a bodily incarnate form eternally, which makes it possible to see his glorious face. And you get some glimpses of this in the Gospels on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. But, you know, Paul talks about then face to face. John has this, is captivated by this vision of seeing Jesus as he is. And what happens when we finally see that is we begin to see the, the visible, beautiful, glorious face of Jesus Christ. And as we think about the life to come, there are things that we sometimes talk about. I wonder if it's going to be like this, or I wonder if it's going to be like that. I'm looking forward. People that I I have loved and lost through death, to be reunited with them. There are many things that we can look forward to. But the Bible presents as the most beautiful thing of all, the opportunity to see Jesus beautifully, visibly. That's at the core of the Christian hope. One one place, by the way, for people that know their literature, this this is what Dante it's really at the heart of Dante's Divine Comedy, the Paradiso, the Paradise. The, the, the hope is to have this beatific vision. Mm. 
So I think it is transformative for us because it know it helps us know what our destiny is a little bit more clearly. And it helps us see that our desire to see beauty, to participate in beauty, is not something wrong in itself, not something to downplay or minimize. No, it's a deep desire in us to see what is beautiful, to behold it, and also to participate in it and to become beautiful. And that, that I think that helps clarify what some of our goals are, and it also helps make sense of some of the desires we have in, in this life. So that, that's a good, maybe theological term, theology for the people. There you go. Understanding there's a beautiful vision, call it the beatific vision that lies in store for us. Yeah. Excellent. Well, speaking about natural beauty and creation, you point out that this beauty gives testimony to its creator, or rather you say through his creation, our creator gives testimony of himself. But then on page 55, you say that therefore we are called to protect this planet and fight to save and preserve it. Now, that sounds a lot like theological reasoning for environmental stewardship. So I thought maybe, could you expound yep. on that? Yeah, let's unpack it a little bit. And one of the things, I mean, Nick, this is probably your passion too. There's a complexity to theology. I think some of the best theology is simple enough to understand. But a lot of theology is thinking a little more carefully about something. So you kind of, in that one sentence, you can kind of see me doing like creation bears witness to who God is. But because he created it, he is showing something of himself. And through that, he is showing you himself. So that's like an even more precise way of talking about what's happening in the created world. Mm. We are seeing God bear witness to his own beauty through the things that he has made. So what are the implications of that for creation care? You know, I, I mentioned a few moments ago, there's a long history of this, and there, there have been whole books written, beautiful books, about the history of Christian thought about caring for creation. And there, there are lots of good reasons to care about the created world. One is just, if God has given, placed something beautiful under your stewardship, you don't want to make it ugly. You want to make sure that it, it displays its full beauty. The other thing is, our natural world has a big impact on human flourishing. Pollution, good food, mm. sunlight, starlight, like these are experiences that human beings can have that depend on, over the long term, over the very long term, effective care of the created world. So I think it's an important topic in its own right. I also, you know, sometimes there has been a bit of a fatalistic attitude among some Christians. I mean, the, the Bible says Peter talks about this, this whole universe is going to burn up. Some people say, well, you know, if it's going to burn up anyway, why, why does it really matter whether we take care of it? And I would say, let's leave the timing of all of that to God. We have evangelistic work to do in the world. And for that evangelistic work to be carried forward, human beings need to be continuing to live, give birth, continue to be in the world for us to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So I, I think even if you are very passionate about the verbal proclamation of the gospel as really at the heart of Christian witness in the world, our care of creation is integrally connected to that. Then, then I'll say this as well. When Christians are careless about the natural world, it is a, it's a squandering of a gift, and it's a disrespect of the Creator who's given it to us. And it's not surprising then that it does not commend our Christian testimony. So when we actually are caring well for our natural environment, 
people say like, this is important. Christians care about this. I care about this. There's a connection that can come, even apologetically, and we we miss an opportunity when these things aren't important to us the way they seem to be in Scripture. Mm. That's great. Okay, uh, here's a question for you: Is beauty the an attribute? Sorry, I'll start over. Is beauty an attribute of God? My wife is currently leading a women's Bible study in which they're looking at the attributes of God, and as I was reading your book, I told her, "Well, you should really consider." if beauty is an attribute of God, but I think you had an interesting take on it in your book as well. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be interested to know, is beauty on her list, the book that they're using? Is there a chapter on beauty or not? There is not, but yes. she's going to add it to her list. Good. So I, th- so theologians will do this to you all the time. They'll say, well, let me give you kind of a yes, no answer. Yes, if you look at it this way. No, if you look at it this way. On the one hand, I think absolutely beauty is an attribute of God. And, you know, the psalmist talks, for example, about inquiring after the Lord in his temple and seeing his beauty there. So beauty is a word that is attached to God. It is attributed to God in the scriptures, possibly not as frequently as some other things like, you know, the love of God or the faithfulness of God. You know, some of these terms are just used very, very frequently. Beauty, beauty, terms for beauty, somewhat less so. But it is presented, I think, as an attribute of God. I also think you could look at it a different way and say there's a there's beauty in many of the other aspects of God. There is beauty in the holiness of God. When you have some of the scenes where people are caught up caught up into God's holiness, think of Isaiah, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, Solomon's experience, Moses' experience on the mountaintop and also in the tabernacle. The holiness of God, there's something beautiful about it and how he's worshipped and the angels that are there. The scene um, gives you a sense of awe and an appreciation for the beauty of God. Um, justice can be beautiful when it is carried out. The righteousness of God has a beauty to it. So it's possible that we could think about beauty as a characteristic of the other attributes of God as well. And I'd be happy to think about it either way, as long as we're leaving a place for beauty in our thinking about God and our worship of God. Mm. Speaking of justice, what is the relationship between beauty and justice? Yeah, it's multi it's multidimensional, I think. First of all, I would say that communities where beauty is valued are likely to be places more conducive to justice. So, and here's just a simple example. I'll just give a very, very simple example. If you're in your house or your apartment or your dorm room, wherever you live, and you haven't kept things very neat. Things have a way of getting messier and messier because it doesn't seem to matter that much if you tidy them up. Whereas if you've actually worked pretty hard to get things clean and tidy, you notice right away something that's out of place. And so you like need to get to a better baseline. And I think in communities where beauty is valued, there's a value and dignity given to human beings that is conducive of more just relationships. I don't mean at all to say that if you've got communities that are beautiful, they're necessarily going to be just because sometimes they're unjust and sometimes beauty itself becomes a form of injustice. But I I do think uh, beauty is conducive of justice. I also think that when justice is done, wrongs are righted. People who have been put down are elevated. Uh, People who have been unjust are rebuked or restrained. 
And that in itself is something beautiful because you are seeing something that it's it's right and it's righteous, but there's also a, there's also a beauty to it. So I, I think there's a connection there. And when, when I share in the book a few thoughts from people that are involved in ministry in Chicago and how they see beauty connected to justice in the in the work and in the lives of their own communities. I think there's something to that connection. I think I'm just beginning to explore it or maybe planting a few seeds. But I think there's a there are lots of interconnections in Christian theology and in the Christian life. And I think there's a beauty justice connection that we could we would do well to explore more fully. I just heard you say something that I wanted to ask you about. You you mentioned that beauty itself can be a form of injustice. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, and I'll I'll be a little more precise than that. For example, and and I actually the way I would want to say it is beauty can be a stimulus to injustice. Hmm. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So, for example, if I become an art thief because I love these beautiful images and then just I'm so attached to them in an idolatrous way that I want to steal them so that other people can't enjoy them. There's something, there's something twisted about my appreciation for beauty, but it's it's become something that is unjust. Mm. Or here's maybe a simpler example. I now have my nice tidy home. You come into my home and I make you feel uncomfortable because you're a little messier than I am. And I don't treat you well because you're messier. Um, that's just a little analogy that we could apply in lots of other areas. Rather than just accommodating different lifestyles and different sensibilities, we have our own perspective on beauty that we insist on, and then we don't treat other people as well because of it. Those would just be two little examples. And I think if we're holding on to beauty in the wrong way, and, and here's another, another example. Just think of, a, it's maybe not an injustice, but it's a harm. So if you think about the fashion industry and think about the movies and how human beings are presented, even some of the most beautiful people in the world are touched up, slimmed down, presented in a certain way to make them look more beautiful than they actually are, which then puts unhealthy expectations on other people. If the beautiful people can't even measure up to their own standard of beauty, um, most of us can will fall, fall far short of that. And I think we know from lots of research, particularly in the experience of young women and how they're thinking about their bodies and their physical forms, but it's not limited to young women. Those things can have a harmful effect. And maybe in the broad sense, that's unjust, but it, it's certainly harmful, mm. whether we think of it as unjust or not. Here's my final question for you. What is the connection between sanctification and beautification? Yeah, one one thing I, I've been thinking about, I don't think I said this in the book, but I, I wish I had. When we talk about the process by which a believer in Christ becomes more like Christ, we usually think of that process in terms of holiness, becoming more holy. And one of the reasons we think that way is because of the word that we use, sanctification. That's a holiness word, sanctus, things that are holy or set apart. It's a, it's a holiness vocabulary word. And that's what theologians, you go back to the Reformation, they talked about justification and sanctification. We could have called it beautification all along because becoming more like Jesus is to become more holy. It is also to become more beautiful. So I think if you use the term, depending on how you define those two terms, you could use them pretty much synonymously. 
becoming more holy is a way of becoming more beautiful. And I think there's something attractive about using beauty vocabulary. If you say to me, do you want to become more holy? Well, yeah, deep down, I do want to become more holy. But I know that's hard. I know it's going to involve sacrifice. If you ask me, do you want to become more beautiful? You absolutely know that the answer to that is yes. You don't want to become more ugly. You want to become more beautiful. I think there's something deeply attractive about beauty. And even using that vocabulary, I think, may inspire us in our, in our pathway to becoming more like Christ. Hmm. Well, Dr. Riken, thank you so much for your time today. The title of your book is Beauty is Your Destiny, How the Promise of Splendor Changes Everything. I know you've also authored many other books. I think it's around 50 or maybe maybe over 50 at this point. Where can people find more information about you and your work? Yes. So I think if you type in Philip Riken, Wheaton College, we've, we've got a web page on the college website that has a short bio, but it also has a list of, of books that I've written, you know, some Bible commentaries, other books, maybe that people might find helpful. Uh, Beauty is Your Destiny is widely available. Wherever you're getting books online, you can you can get it. And hopefully you can get it if you go to some real live Christian bookstores. Hopefully you can find it there as well. But I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this theme. And thanks for letting people know about the book as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they'll be delivered right to your podcast app. And if there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. If this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you would like to support this podcast, the best way to do that is by leaving a written review on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. That really helps boost this show in their ratings. So if you would do that, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you.